In Psalm 36, David contrasts the wicked with the righteous. While contemplating the lifestyle of the wicked and their evil schemes, David finds relief in knowing that God will pour out his mercy on his people. As such, David prayed that God would continue to display mercy so that the wicked would not destroy his integrity. The inscription tells us that this psalm was written by David, and it was for the choir director, which indicates that this psalm was sung as part of Israel's corporate worship. We could call this a song of God's mercy. A song of God's mercy. As well, I want you to note that David is described here as the servant of the Lord, specifically Yahweh. And the term servant that is used here specifically refers to one who serves God in worship. Now, as we look at Psalm 36 and the song of God's mercy, we're going to divide it into two parts. Verses 1 to 4, the failure of the wicked, and then verses 5 to 12, the faithfulness of God. So let's begin with verses 1 through 4, the failure of the wicked. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. His plans, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Here we see the failure of the wicked, and it begins with the statement, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Now the Septuagint translation of this verse reads this, the wicked hath an oracle of transgression in his heart. Now what is that oracle of transgression in the heart? It's that old nature that everyone has, that Adamic nature. In Matthew 15, 19, the Lord Jesus said, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. It's an ungodliness that comes out of the depths of the human heart. And so the wicked is informed by the sin nature within him. He then goes on to say that the wicked or the ungodly are influenced by their transgression or their sin nature. The wicked person here is first revealed by his presumptuous, presumptuousness. There is no fear of God before his eyes. All sin flows from that thought. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The Hebrew word used here for fear means dread. It's the fear of judgment. They have no fear of judgment from God. And moreover, rather than loving and worshiping God, the wicked man flatters himself in his own eyes. Now the rest of this verse is a little difficult to translate, but it literally reads this, to find his iniquity to hate it. The meaning here is that the flattery that the wicked person engages in is so great that he believes that God will not discover his sin nor judge it. And so he becomes a vain individual. He becomes narcissistic. He becomes full of pride, and in his pride he rules out God completely from his life. Furthermore, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. His words no longer contain the truth. They are wickedness and deceit, which is a cover for his evil intentions. In other words, wise thoughts have abandoned him. Good actions have deserted him. And in their place, he plots wickedness on his bed, literally when he's by himself. 
and he walks in an evil way. That word way there is that word that describes the manner of one's life. The manner in which this man walks, or these type of people walk, the wicked, it's evil. Rather than fleeing evil, he traffics in it, and his conscience is seared. Now these verses present a comprehensive picture of sin. Sin engages the mind, the heart, and the will. A person who is engaged in sin no longer sees themselves standing before God as their judge, and so they become perverted. In essence, their ego then becomes inflated. They replace truth with flattery. Their minds are so wrapped in wickedness that not only are they deceiving others, they're deceiving themselves. And the path that they walk in is evil. They are self-centered and self-consumed, and they have no authentic relationship with God, with themselves, or with anyone else. Flattery, illusion, deception are the determinants of the wicked person's life. And it's only the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's conviction that can reveal to us the depths or the, uh, of human sin, the, literally the transgression of the wicked. Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, they will not see their sin. Now, let's look at the faithfulness of God in verses 5 through 12. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doors of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Now when we think about the faithfulness of God here, we see it uh, here in his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his judgments. But the one word that continually repeats itself here in verses 5 through 12 is the word loving kindness. And David here, when he uses the term loving kindness, it's the term for covenant love or mercy. And the fact that uh, it comes from God indicates that it's transcendent and eternal. Now, when we talk about God's faithfulness here, faith, God's faithfulness, God's uh, ability to be true to his nature means that his loving kindness is not conditioned on us, but on himself. In other words, God is going to be merciful to us because of who he is, not because of who or what we are. God's faithfulness or truthfulness is so great that the text here says it goes all the way to the clouds. And then we have God's righteousness, which is his relationship to us, his justness. In other words, how God relates to us is just. 
And that means that God doesn't relate to us because, well, he relates to this one more than this person because he likes this person more than that person, or he likes this person less than the other person, therefore he doesn't relate to them as much. The fact that God is righteous or God is just means that he relates to all of us equally and the same as his children. In fact, his righteousness is as firm and steadfast as the great mountains. And then God's judgment, okay, which is his justice, and it's the, uh, it's the manner in which his righteousness plays out in day-to-day living, is so deep, it's as deep as the depths of the ocean. And in other words, you know, we can never get to the bottom of God's justice. Uh, God's justice is not like man's justice. You know, so often our justice is based on feeling, it's based on emotion, it's based on like or dislike, uh, it, it can be bought, it can be sold, but God's justice, because again, it ties back to his faithfulness, he has to be true to his character, means that his justice is based on his character. His character is holy. And so therefore, it has to, uh, it cannot be bought, it cannot be sold, it, it, it doesn't show favoritism or anything of that nature. Now David goes on to say that God, like a mother hen, is a place of refuge for his children. Now the word refuge in verse 7 probably is a reference to the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary of the Lord. He mentions God's house in verse 8. And if that's the case, then the wings here refer to those of the cherubim, on the mercy seat of the ark. And, and, and what we have there is when you go into the Holy of Holies and you saw the cherubim over top of the ark of the covenant and the shadow that's cast there uh, reminds us that God's shadow, just as it's cast over that ark, God's shadow offers us protection. Now, the phrase that David uses here, a mother hen uh, as a place of refuge for her chicks, is an anthropomorphism. He's identifying something from nature uh, to typify something about God. And just like a, a, a brood of chicks hides and, uh, under the wings of, its, of the mother hen, that's what we're to do with God. And the fact that, again, it's the shadow of those wings. If I'm standing in the shadow of God's wing, and literally I'm standing under God's wing, guess what? I have better protection under his wing than I would from all the armies of the world. That's David's point. In Exodus 19, verse 4, God told Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. See, under his wings, there was protection, security, rest, and the warmth of God's love for Israel. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew 23, 37. There Christ quotes from this psalm to describe what he offers his people. And sadly, so many turn it down. And not only is there protection with God because of his mercy, but... There's abundant provision as well. Notice he says that we're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Now, what food on earth can possibly match that of the house of the Lord in quality and quantity? None. And the same goes for the pleasures of heaven as well. F.B. Meyer says this, that God gives sorrow by cupfuls but pleasures by riverfuls. And I think that's interesting. 
You know, we so often uh, uh, think that, you know, once we're a Christian or we're, we're following the Lord that, you know, there's no pleasure, there's no fun. And yet the Bible says the opposite. Uh, there, there is an abundant pleasure in the things of God. In God's house, uh, or the, the tabernacle, later the temple, the priest received a portion of the sacrifices for their own use uh, and would feast in the sanctuary. They, 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 they never wanted for food. They never wanted for drink. Uh, God provided everything for them. David here sees all of God's people enjoying a feast in God's house where there is an abundance of food and water. God provides for his people. Now here's something that's interesting here because when we think about this statement that um, we're sa abundantly satisfied in the fullness of his house or his temple and he gives us drink from the rivers of his pleasure, in the Middle Eastern uh, culture, temples were usually built on top of fountains or springs of water. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that we won't get into here in the sum. Uh, suffice to say, that's the idea here, is that, uh, you know, in the, in the temple of God, there is a fountain of water that is springing forth, a fountain of life. And literally, that is what a fountain of water uh, is. Uh, here's something else that's interesting in verse 8, is the word pleasures or delights comes from this Hebrew word Eden which we know is used in Genesis 2 and 3 for the Garden of Eden. So literally, the Garden of Eden was the Garden of Pleasure, or the Garden of Delight. And man sinned and was cast out of Eden. But here's the thing. Through faith in Christ, we now have access into God's presence, and we can eat in or delight or enjoy the pleasure of His blessing. And as well, the fact that he gives us to drink from the river or the fountain that springs forth in his temple. Indeed, our fountain is Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1 and verse 4. And when we look again at these verses here, what does it tell us? Um, you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Again, we see, the, we see this pointing right back to Christ. Just as natural light reveals things in their true form, so the light of God enables us to see things as He does. It enables us to form correct estimates of spiritual realities, or to form correct estimates of the world, or to inform, or to rather to form correct estimates of others, or even ourselves. And so with this contrast now between the evil, the wicked, the dark, and that which is right, or God's light, David now says, God, sustain me in your mercy, in your covenant love. He prays that the upright might know God's righteousness and be protected from evil and be provided for in the evil day. David concludes by asking that his enemies would not be able to cut him down and place the foot of pride on his neck. You know, a conquering warrior, when he defeated his enemy, he would place his foot on the neck of the enemy. Well, that's what David's saying here. You know, I don't want to be defeated. I don't want the enemy of pride to come and take me out. And that needs to be our prayer as well. That, you know, any of us, all of us, are susceptible to pride. And our constant prayer needs to be, God, give me mercy so that I don't succumb to pride and think more highly of myself than I ought because it will drive you away from God's house. 
Pride drives people away from the house of God. The minute people run from the house of God, so how often do we hear, well, I this or I that. And right there is the source of pride. Looking beyond the moment, David sees the wicked has fallen, cast down, and not able to rise. Because God's judgment has come upon them, it's final and it's certain. Friends, it is a privilege to be a child of God. We rest safely under his wings, we feast joyfully at his table, we drink abundantly from his river, and we walk confidently in his light. And in response to these blessings, David prayed, Lord, continue to pour out your blessing on your people and judge the wicked. And friends, God will continue to bless us as we love him, as we get to know him better, as we walk in obedience to his will. And so ask yourself, do you love him enough? Do you know him enough? Do you obey him enough? And the answer, to be honest, is to all three of those questions is no, we don't. So we have a lot of work to do. David knew that the enemy was subtle and that he dared not get too overconfident. He didn't want to be too cocky. He didn't want to be too prideful. And so he prayed to the Lord to protect him, protect him from their hands and feet. He didn't want to be knocked down by pride. He didn't want to be trampled over by pride. And so by faith, he looks ahead and sees the enemies of the Lord completely defeated. And on that confidence, he continues to serve the Lord and praise him for his mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we confess that we live in a wicked world surrounded by wickedness. The schemes and the plots of the wicked abound. And yet, Father, uh, we can take comfort in knowing that you are the God of mercy, Lord, that uh, we have your loving kindness, your covenant love always poured upon us. And because of that, Father, no matter what this world does or throws at us, it's never going to rob us of our protection. We're always protected in your or under your wings if, as, as the psalmist says uh, your shadow gives us better protection than all the world's armies and father we're also thankful that lord in your mercy you give us all the provisions that we need everything that we need for faith and life you've provided to us and so lord uh, we have we have no need to desire the things that the wicked has we have no need to follow after those things because as david shows us here father the the wicked have forgotten you. They, they don't fear you. They don't fear your judgment. They don't even uh, think that uh, you're going to do anything. They can just continue to thumb their nose at you and live their wicked lives as they please. And uh, Father, they will soon find out there is no pleasure in those things. But indeed, the true pleasure, the true Eden is delighting in your blessings. And so Father, I thank you for the many rich blessings you've poured out upon us. Help us, Father, to love you more. Help us, Father, to obey you more. Help us, Father, to uh, uh, know you better each and every day. And we thank you for your mercy. And we pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.